0: Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, but most, more importantly, one of our highlights of the year, the annual Colin C. Stewart III MD uh, Visiting Professorship in General Pediatrics. And I have the pleasure, as every year, of welcoming Dr. Stewart's family, his uh, son Jake and daughter Mary. And I'll ask Jake to introduce the other members of the Stewart family who are sitting with him this morning. (laughs) Thank you, welcome again. So we appreciate the generosity of the Stewart family, which has endowed this uh, visiting professorship and allowed us to welcome the some of you may have seen the slides running the, the, the many uh, esteemed speakers who have come and joined us since 2008. Dr. Stewart, uh, if you may remember, was a native of, not a native, was not born in Hanover, but grew up in Hanover as his father was a physiologist at the medical school, Colin C. Stewart as well. He uh, received two years of his training in, at uh, Dartmouth Medical School before heading to Philadelphia for his subsequent uh, medical training, as many did in those days, before Dartmouth was a two-year medical school again. Trained further in the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where he was uh, uh, achieved uh, his master's in pediatrics and returned to the Hitchcock Clinic in about 1931, where he established pediatrics, essentially, at Dartmouth Medical School and the Hitchcock Clinic uh, earning an honorary degree from Dartmouth Medical School in 1955 or 58, I'm trying to remember the slides and I'm going without a script here, but, but uh, I know the story well enough. Uh, unfortunately, he had uh, died of uh, pancreatic cancer at the age of, I think, 61, or, or 59 in 1961. So there were some photos from the Hitchcock Clinic in 58 running earlier as well, when he was one of many of the founders. And he was, he was the pediatrician in town. He was known as the go-to pediatrician and worked as a school physician for the Hanover Public Schools. And I see Bill Boyle probably was also the town uh, health inspector, the way Bill, Bill became and was known to be um, really the consummate pediatrician that all families wanted and needed when their children had needs. So I think it's entirely appropriate that our, uh, our current consummate Hanover pediatrician, Dr. Steve Chapman, will introduce our Stuart visiting professor.
1: Steve? So I'm uh, really excited to be able to introduce uh, our this year's Colin Stewart Visiting Professor, Dr. Lee Beers, who is President-Elect of the American Academy of Pediatrics, so we're very fortunate to get her here. She's in high demand. She's also Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medical Director for Community Health and Advocacy for Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. She's the Founding Director of the DC Mental Health Access and Pediatrics Program and Co-Director of the Early Childhood Innovation Network. She also oversees the Child Health Advocacy Institute's Community Mental Health Corps, a public-private coalition in Washington, D.C. She received her uh, medical degree from Emory and did her residency training at the Naval Medical Center. From there, she went to Guantanamo Bay where she served as the sole pediatrician there. Um, Amazing experience. We were hearing about that a little bit last night. We also heard a little bit about how she took up scuba diving her spare time in Cuba. Um, She received the Academic Pediatric Association 2019 Public Policy and Advocacy Award. Uh, She imbues all her work with the principles and ideas of co-design and collaboration with parents, families, and communities, and in everything she does, she's dedicated to inclusion and diversity. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Lee Pierce.
2: All right, let's see, is it, I'm gonna turn that off. That's what I was warned to do, all right, is it working? Yeah, I think so, right, all right, good. Well, good morning everyone, and thank you, Steve. That was actually quite a lovely introduction. I appreciate that, um, and, and really actually highlighted some of the things I think are most important about our work. Um, it's, it's, I'm really delighted to be here to talk with all of you today um, about the topic. I, I understand maybe in some of the materials that said I was talking about adolescent parenting and early childhood brain development, those are, that's, those are two separate talks. though. The, so, so you can come see Thursday at Mount Washington if you want to hear about adolescent parenting. <laughs> though, though I would say, actually, my interest in early childhood brain development really grew out of um, my experiences when I first came over to Children's National in DC uh, in two thousand three, I guess um, I came over and one of the things I did, uh, one of my responsibilities when I first arrived was to run our teen parenting program. And, and it was actually that experience that really got me interested in early childhood brain development because I, I was, you know we were we were caring for adolescent headed families in a multidisciplinary clinic and and really struck by just um, how, in, even in some of the most difficult and vulnerable situations, um, young parents were able to provide a warm and loving and supportive environment for their their infants, and and what a difference that made. Um, and so it really got me interested in that idea of of parent support in the very earliest ages, and and how can we support that um, for all of our parents. So so that you know over many years is what got me from teen parents to early childhood <laughs> which isn't a nat- you know may not seem like a natural uh, leap to some but but made a lot of sense to me so so uh, no conflicts um, in pediatrics we rarely do uh, so some of the things we're gonna I wish right but no it's uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today, Um, is talk a little bit about how early childhood brain development really impacts long-term health and educational outcomes. Um, And I think that this is a a field that that in in medicine we're learning more and more about. Um, For folks who've been doing this for a long time, none of this will seem like a surprise. Um, We're also going to talk a bit about how both adversity and positive experiences impact health and development. And I think actually much of the, the narrative now is around how adversity impacts development and negatively impacts development which is true and very important. Um, but equally, imp- if not more important, is how positive experiences impact development. Because those are the things that we can intervene in, and those are the things that we we can have an influence on to make better. Um, and so, so I'll talk about both of those things. And then identify some ways that pediatricians and other pediatric health providers can support early childhood brain development through a two-generational approach. Um, and I'll, I'll give some examples of things that can be done just very naturally in the clinical setting, some things that can be done on a, on a sort of broader community level. Um, and then I'll share a little bit with you about some of the work that Steve was mentioning that we've done in D.C., just as an example of, of some of the community-based things that we've done. So this is... Um, Just a a little bit of a frame for what I'm going to talk about over the next hour in terms of brain development. Um, And it's just a bit of a reminder that our experiences, both the both sort of supportive and nurturing experiences, as I said, and also negative experiences, really have demonstrable impacts on both our brain development, and our epigenetics. Um, I think most of you may be familiar with the the terminology of epigenetics, but but essentially, if our genes are... You know kind of the the blueprints and the construction materials of our of our bodies and our brains epigenetics is is the the actual construction plan right it 's how those things come together and are expressed and and our experiences impact both our epigenetics and our brains, um, which then has impacts on our behavior which which then creates a, a, a sort of constant and complex loop um, further affecting or impacting our experiences and our brain developments what's not fully depicted here and i'll I'll allude to it at various other places is that that the our experiences also have um, neuroendocrine and biologic impacts on our bodies which which also impacts our brain development so you know if 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 our experiences um profoundly influence our brain development um, and and behavior, what's, what's most important is to really build a strong foundation for that. And, and a couple of things to think about and realize are that brain development really begins in the prenatal period and, and lays the foundation for a lifetime of healthy development, physical health, social emotional health, school achievement, and executive functioning, and I think you know what. What I like to really emphasize is that is that this brain development really begins in the prenatal period, if if not pre, if not in preconception. And I think you know, I, I think back to my own pediatric training and remember being in an OB um, and the the many of you may have had the same experience the obstetricians always said we could tell who's going into pediatrics because as soon as the baby is born their their attention pivots right and they they, they, they start to each over to the warmer and they want to they want to uh, be engaged with the baby but this is really a reminder to us that that our attention also needs to be during that prenatal period um, and that that's a very important time for for uh, Uh, for the infants and children we take care of. So, you know, over a relatively short period of time, when you think about the typical lifespan of an adult, you know, the first five years is a relatively small percentage of that time, but yet 90% of a child's brain development happens in that first five years. Um, So so thinking about that, by the time a child enters kindergarten, most of their brain development has already happened, um, and, and we're going to you know again I, as I said we 'll talk about this in a little bit more detail, but but those positive stimulating experiences support development and help set children up for, for success. And negative or toxic experiences can really inhibit that. Um, you start to see actually disparities in language development based on, on experiences um, as early as the age of 18 months. So these this time period is really important to us. Um, I'm going to spend a few. I'm going to move out. I'm going to spend a few minutes sort of talking about why that happens and how that happens. Um, my disclaimer is that I'm not a neuroscientist, though some of the things that I'll, I'll put up here are things that, that I, are studies that I would never, in a million years, have been able to do myself. Um, but they're things that I think have been important to me in understanding how I frame my clinical practice and how I frame the work that we do with children and families and communities. So, this is one of those slides that I would never have done myself. Um, but it's a little reminder of, of, of brain development, right? Some, some of you, many of you have probably learned this at some point in your career. Many of you, for me, it was probably some time ago. Um, but, but a little refresher, so, so, you know, we all know our, our brains are made up of um, neurons that send connections to each other via synapses, and that's how we, we learn and grow, and, um, you know, we're, we, we're making about a, a million new neuronal connections a second when we're born, um, so lots and, and lots of this happening. And the, the way this works is that these connections really grow and proliferate over the first few years of life, really peaking probably at about age three. Um, so, right, when your three-year-old seems to think they know more than you, they maybe they do because they have more <laughs> neuronal connections than you do. Um, maybe they don't. <laughs> they're, they're lacking some of that experience. Um, but but you 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 really reach an age peak. And and then I don't many of you all remember uh, Marie Connor. The 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 author who who writes all these books about how you can clean out your house and tidy, and she says, you know, if if it's not um, if you're not using it and it's not bringing you joy, throw it out. And that's a bit what your brain does with the synapses, right? So if if you're not using those things, um, or if they're not positive stimulating things, your brain prunes the synapses that that develop. Um, and so 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 then as you know that that peaks in those early years, and then once you get into sort of adolescence and adulthood, tends to stabilize, and then unfortunately for some of us, then starts to decline a little bit later. So, um, but as pediatricians, we can really play a role in supporting those experiences that that really um, uh, minimize the pruning and support the blooming of of those those neuronal connections. So. You know, so then, how do we do this? right? Um, you know, I often find sometimes when I talk about this, folks say, "Well, that feels a little that 's a lot of responsibility um, and and feels a little overwhelming um, because there's so many pieces of this. Um, what What can we really have influence on and so, using this biodevelopmental framework i 'm going to start to walk us through how we can have influence on that. Um, so, you know, the, the foundations for healthy development are things that we, we do as, as pediatric professionals. Um, you know, we focus on relationships. We focus on the physical, chemical, and built environment. Um, nutrition. These are all things that fall within our sphere of experience and influence in different ways. Um, And so those things all kind of come together um, and have these cumulative and biologic effects on the brain development and on gene expression, which ultimately promotes lifelong outcomes. Um, and again, those can be very positive and um, you know supportive lifelong outcomes. Um, and those can be sort of self-defeating and difficult lifelong outcomes. Um, but 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 all of these things impact not just our health behaviors and our health outcomes, but also our education and long-term career and success outcomes. And so so then the real of this, which you'll hear me come back to over and over during this conversation, is that um, when there's positive early influences, the the, the things that have positive early influences are are typically going to be really healthy and adaptive things. And when you have dysfunctional or maladaptive influences in in the early years, those things have a negative influence on health. So then the next question is, what's maladaptive, right? What's... What is stressful what is toxic um, and and you know if you think for a minute, if everyone in here thought for a minute like what what would adversity be? Probably everybody's going to think of something a little different right um, and and part of the important point here is that there is individual variability in in stress and how adversity or stress is perceived, and it's this sort of um, you know the the metric of stress itself is it's not just the stressor, but it 's how an individual responds to that stress and how what kind of things around the individual buffer their stress right and so there's a lot of the variability so there's a there 's a precipitating stressor, but also the perception of the stress and the reaction to the stress influence how severe that that influence is um, so i 'm going to go f- through a little bit sort of what um uh influences the perception of the reaction to stress and how and how we can influence that as well. Um the there's a, a the National Scientific Council on the Developing Child has sort of talked about three different categories of stress. There's there's positive stress, tolerable stress, and toxic stress. And so so we're I'm gonna go through each of those uh momentarily. So positive stress, um that's something that folks experience probably on a daily basis right doing things like standing up in front of grand rounds gives you a little positive stress right these are these are brief normal you know, mild to moderate intensity and really probably actually helpful and adaptive because you learn how to get through them and get past them. For, you know, most of this is very normative in childhood. Um, you know, a 15 month old whose language isn't quite there and wants to tell you they want something but they can't figure out how to get it out. Um, you know, someone who you know trips, falls off their bike. A little bit of stress on a project in middle school—all of these things are pretty normative childhood stress, and 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 and, and again, <laughs> are good learning experiences. And what helps them become good learning experiences are these social emotional buffers. Um, so the things that are around a child or an adult that helps them take that sort of brief period of stress and And help them respond to that and return back to their baseline state of functioning. Um, so you know, either by some reassurance or talking or redirecting all of those those things in your environment which can buffer the stress, help make positive stress stay positive. And these things actually build motivation and resiliency. Um, they when you learn to work through these things, when you learn that, it's okay if something goes wrong. I can figure out how to get past that. That that's a good thing. That builds your motivation and resiliency. Tolerable stress, um, which I don't have a slide on, but tolerable stress is is stress that is a bit more severe. Um, it's, it's a more severe circumstance. So for example, um, you know, a, a divorce in a family or a move or something along those lines excuse um, me, that, that uh... sorry, I have a tickle in my throat. <coughs> so something that's a bit more severe, but is still buffered by the people or the, the, people or the circumstances around a child or adult. And, and so that's a more severe circumstance of stress, but it's tolerable because it's buffered. So then we start to think about toxic stress. And and what is that and what does that mean? Um, it's a word that's actually gotten much more common in the sort of day-to-day vernacular now, we we hear it a lot more, um, and I so I think it's worth talking about what toxic stress really is and and what that means. Um, it's going to be a more long-lasting, frequent, or strong intensity stress. You know, t- some typical examples are physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, neglect, household dis- severe household dysfunction, and these are things that are serious, and long-standing, um, that really continued on the other really important piece of this is that they are stresses for which there is insufficient social emotional buffering so there are these these difficult experiences that are happening and there's not Something on the other side to buffer the impacts of those experiences and and these types of stresses, and again i 'll show you some examples of this, but they can cause potentially permanent and long term effects on on childhood brain development and architecture and epigenetics um, and so these things are very serious you know when when I talk about this, sometimes I ask folks. To think for a moment about a circumstance in their life that was incredibly scary or fear-inducing. And kind of think about how that made you feel, right? You're, you probably, your heart went up, right rate went up, you, 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 you know, might have felt a little short of breath, a little trembling, you know, a little anxious or very anxious. And then on the flip side, think about how you felt at a time in your life when you were nervous about something or you were worried about something, and someone helped bring you down from that and someone helped calm you from that. And then think about how it would feel to live in that state of fear all the time, um, particularly as a child, um, and to live in that state of fear all the time without, without the influence on the other side of helping you kind of calm down um, and, and helping you buffer that. And that's what kids who are experiencing toxic stress feel. And it's, it's, it's very hard and it's very difficult and you can understand why it has long term impacts. And just to sort of put a maybe a finer point on it, you know, you, you have these stresses, right? And so your body and and these long term stresses, your body your body feels that fear response all the time. It's in this chronic fight or flight um, feeling. Your your cortisol increases, your norepinephrine increases. You just feel activated all the time. Um, that causes changes in your brain architecture which actually then leads to a hyper-responsive stress response. So you're actually less able to tolerate and manage when even smaller stresses come your way because you are so activated all the time. Um, and that's what becomes toxic stress, and and we, you know you'll you'll see this sometimes in kids or or older adolescents who who have been experiencing this for some time. They have a hyperreactivity that has has come out of this long term um, exposure to toxic stress um, that 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 really has has cyclical impacts on on their health outcomes and behaviors. So. How does this happen these I, I always find these slides very um, compelling and sobering to think about what the actual impact on um, what what the actual physical impact is it, again. Back to my armchair neuroscientist. Uh, The the prefrontal cortex, as you might remember, uh, impacts your your really complex cognitive functions. Um, It it helps moderate your social behaviors, your decision making. And then the hippocampus is the area of your brain that plays a really important role in your short and long-term memory. And so these are depictions of what neurons look like in the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus. Um, And if you look, I heard I was told this was a a Dartmouth-colored pointer, so with the greens. (laughs) So <laughs> um, these are sort of in a typical brain um, who's had sort of typical experiences. And these neurons, you can see, is very robust and many connections, and you can just imagine lots of activity going on there. And this is a neuron that's been damaged by toxic stress, and you can visibly see the difference between those things. And when you start to sort of think about those changes, you start to, to think about, well, what does this mean um, for... For say, for a child who's heading off to school, and they're going to be facing more complex cognitive challenges and more complex social tasks, and they're they're less equipped, they're neurologically less equipped to deal with those things when they've when they've had the, that chronic long term exposure to toxic stress. Here's sort of another way of looking at this. There's a a group led by Nathan Fox um, from University of Maryland uh, who did um, some work looking at Uh, orphans in Romania who were living in very deprived institutionalized settings um, and looking what the impact of of that had on their brain development. Um, And actually their study compared children who had been in, in the orphanage with children who had actually been placed in loving foster care homes. Uh, and so, so this is this is a, some of what they saw. So the, this is the healthy controls. Um, this brain over here, these PET scans. Um, and, and as you might imagine, the brighter the colors, the more brain activity there is. Um, and again, these are the temporal lobes, which is kind of right in the area where the hippocampus is. Um, and you can see in a sort of a healthy brain that's had typical experiences, lots of bright activity here. These are PET scans from some of the children who were in um, these Romanian orphanages, and you can see a dramatic difference in the level of activity there. And so, so, so this is sort of building our case for the fact that these early experiences really have impacts on brain development. The other kind of piece which I, I find Again, concerning and fascinating is, is, is that the impact of trauma actually does impact on your genes. So telomeres are these caps, these DNA repeats um, at the end of your chromosomes, and they promote stability of your chromosome, and they, the, 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 the um, more you have, sort of, the more stable they are. Their, their length is a measure of biologic aging, so as you age, they start to kind of drop off a little bit. And there had been some previous reports linking psychosocial stress to telomere shortening, which again is is um, uh, associated with premature aging and 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 health issues. Um, and then they looked at um, there were some some uh, 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 investigators who looked at a small group of adults um, who had no sort of pre-existing mental health conditions, but had had a history of had early adverse experiences, and what they saw was that these adults and in, in controlling for other other things actually had shortening of their telomeres at, at an earlier stage and so you start to again see where some of these impacts of early childhood experiences have effects not just on your brain development but on your epigenetics so you know so we 've talked about the impacts. So what are these adverse childhood experiences? Again, this is a terminology that is in the common vernacular, I think, now. Um, There was, many of you are probably familiar, there's the original study on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, um, which was actually done in the mid-90s at Kaiser Permanente. And so what this was, it was actually a study that was initiated by um, some physicians who ran an obesity clinic. And what they noted was that The patients in their obesity, the adults in their obesity clinic who were most refractory to uh, intervention. Anecdotally, they were noticing had increased experiences of sexual abuse, of of childhood abuse, and they started to kind of wonder, right, why there feels like there's a connection here. And and so they wanted to probe into that a little bit. And so they they did a study with um, members in this San Diego Kaiser Permanente. Um, They surveyed over 17,000 patients, um, actually mostly middle class Americans, mostly white, mostly college educated. Um, And they found some pretty profound results. Um, oh, when I should say. So, so what they asked them about were um, these ex- what you know what some of these early experiences. So, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, physical or emotional neglect exposure to mental illness, substance abuse or domestic violence, um, and divorce or separation of their parent or caregiver. And these were sort of, this broke up into sort of 10 ACEs. And your yes or no response to this gave you a score of zero to 10. Um, And what they found was that over 60% of the patients in their study had at least one adverse childhood experience, and one in six had experienced four or more adverse childhood experience. And so this was a, a you know sort of study population that you might not have expected to be at particularly high risk for adverse childhood experiences, and yet they were very, very common. So then some of the other things oh, and incarceration apologies. Um, so then they started to look both in the, their study and in other subsequent studies about the impact of these adverse experiences on long- term sort of developmental health outcomes. Um, so sort of. You know, initially staying focused on the age, one of the age groups that we take care of, um, you know, if you have significant adversity in your first couple of years of life, uh, you have a greater risk of developmental impairment. And that risk of developmental impairment increases with the number of adverse experiences that you have experienced. And then, when you look a little bit past our age range um, and you look at the impacts on adults, again, you see this graded response to 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 long term health outcomes and some of these health outcomes are things you know obesity de- depression. Um, uh, you know, sexually transmitted infections. Some of these things are things that you can kind of reasonably link to health behaviors. Some of them, things like cancer, um, of, of all types are not necessarily easily linked to, to behaviors. Um, and so this is again raising a serious question about these influences in early childhood really do have a long term impact, not just on social emotional development um, and health behaviors, but also just general, beha- general health status as an adult. So to, to, we're going to move on in a second to what can we do about all of this and what, what are some of the ways that we can positively influence. But just to kind of summarize, we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, there's this ecology, right? The social and physical environment. Um, that merges with your biology, your, your sort of pre-existing um, predisposition to, to illness or disease or developmental delay, um, which then, of course, then leads to your development. But the really important thing is that this is pediatrics, right? This is what we do is look at the intersection of all of these things together and think about how to, we're a preventative medicine specialty, um, to think about how do we look at the intersection of all of these things together um, uh, to positively influence outcomes for children. So talking a little bit about how we can then support this. you know, this is really in many ways our theory of change, right? We're, we're as physicians, as providers, um, as medical providers and pediatrics, we can focus on these things. So supportive relationships, stimulating experiences, and health-promoting environments. And that can counter some of these impacts of adversity that we see with, that, that lead to impaired health and development. So one of the most important pieces of this is resilience, um, and and we talked a little bit earlier about how that that buffering piece um, really helps helps children. Either you know, th- there's any number of, of environmental experiences that we may not be able to get rid of um, as pediatricians and as pediatric providers. We certainly should try um, and we certainly should, should should advocate to change environments so that children and, and adults aren't experiencing these things. But we also know that these things are going to happen. And so how how do we help buffer kids from our position from the negative impacts of this. Um, and one of those things is really building resilience. So the, the sing, and you'll hear me say this a couple of times, the single greatest contributor to resilience is a safe and supportive adult relationship. Um, ideally, that's a parent. Um, and someone who's with the child all the time. It's not always going to be a parent. Sometimes a parent is a cause of toxic stress, but so it doesn't have to be a parent. It can be a teacher, it can be a social worker, it can be a coach, um, it can be a physician, right? It is, it, this is the single most important contributor to resilience is a consistent caring adult for a child. and that helps children learn how to mitigate those, 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 those um, adverse experiences. It helps them learn how to buffer them, and it helps them learn how to, how to cope with the other threats that are coming their way. Um, the earlier this resilience is built, the better, but it can happen at any time. So, to think about how to start building it early, some of you may remember this video. It was beautiful, actually. It went totally viral. Um, And for those of you who didn't see it, it was this just wonderful charming video of this dad and this baby talking to each other and that you know you can see the baby's not old enough to be be forming you know like actual words right but he you could tell the baby thought he was saying something right and so the the dad and the baby are just talking to each other and and responding to each other and it was a real conversation right and and this is this 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 is strengthening brain development these interactions that happened day in day out this this is strengthening baby's brain development it's this concept called serve and return where the baby sort of lobs something at you in terms of their their um, uh, you know what you know what what they want you to respond to and you respond back to them in a very interactive way and and what that does is that helps baby to learn babies to learn that there are people around them that care about them, that value them. It encourages them to be curious. It encourages them to seek out those experiences that build that build you know that that build up those neuronal connections that build seek out those experiences that are stimulating and it helps them feel a sense of safety and security. So so this concept of early relational health is really important and something that we can support and encourage because it's also not something parents really sometimes know is important. Um, you know i find i don't know if any of you hear this I sometimes i get parents ask me about like what about these videos like teach your baby to read at 9 months i'm like no 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 just just talk to them <laughs> just show them some pictures that's going to help more than more than anything so it's 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 equipping parents with the skills to know that these natural um, interactions that they have really are building their brain development and this is again a little reminder of you know looking at the brains, you know, in those early stages, you know, the thing that's so scary about the impact of negative influences, on uh, I know we like at this age, we can't change at all. So. <laughs> but see, right, you you can still change. It just takes more effort. So <laughs> Yeah, you know. Um, so, so so the same things that 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 make the early adversity so concerning. Are also really assuring because it means that the brain is really malleable in these early in these early years, and so you can really counter those negative impacts and experiences. Um, and and I think I also want to point out, having worked with adolescents for a number of years, and still is that you know it's it's not as if in the adolescent period change can't happen. It, it it can happen. It, it may take a little longer. It may take a little more patience. Um, it may take a, a little. There may be some more ups and downs, right? Um, but that change can happen. It just might take a little more patience um, and persistence. Um, but this, you know, the, this this early childhood time, your brain it can just change so rapidly and dramatically in response to the experiences. And and that's you know, th- and that's that's true for adversity, but that's also true for positive, stimulating experiences. So then what's the role of the caregiver in this? Um, you know, it's just as if the, just as toxic stress is impacting a child, these are typically things that are in the environment for the whole family. And so they can impact the caregiver as well. Um, and so really thinking about how we, through our clinical practices, um, and our, and our community and intervention work can take a two generation approach. Um, and that really can help support families and kids and help make up. that's where I was going anyway. So okay, um, n- mitigate those negative experiences. So, you know, when you when you again two gener- the, the two gen approach is is increasingly becoming a, a word that's thrown around. So thinking about what that really means. Um, often in medicine, you know, we even in training, right? Mostly if you uh, take out family practice, we're trained as pediatricians or we're trained as internists, right? And so um, we think about the child or we think about the adult. And what, two generation, uh, what a two generation approach is, is really to think about the whole family and how that family intertwines and how the influences on the whole family affect and impact the health and well-being of your patient. So there's, uh, uh, the ascendant aspen actually does some great work on two generational approaches if you if you haven't seen their website they have some really l- wonderful reports and other uh, more detailed information about this but but they kind of define these these five components of the two generational approach the, the this is the one where we usually find that we sit in the health and well-being right um, that's where our training is but the, but but also these other pieces, developing social capital, so developing those social supports and connections, so that that children can have those relationships that that buffer stress and adversity. Um, early childhood development, our partnerships with early childhood education centers, um, encouraging families to enroll their kids in high quality education centers. And I do say high quality because not all are created created equal. Um, you know for for family members and adults post secondary and employment pathways when when there's resource stability in a household that that contributes positively to the entire household's well-being um, and economic assets so there's also there's some really kind of interesting early research looking at um, if if sort of just monthly baseline cash advances to a family can actually improve their outcomes just to sort of eliminate the, the, the fears and the toxic stress related to resource insecurity. Um, and so I think that's an interesting question. I don't know that we have a lot of research on that actually, um, but, but, but there's some early research that suggests that there, there might be something there. So it's, a, it's an interesting question. So what, can we do? Um, and I'm going to kind of talk through sort of some of the very kind of simple day-to-day things that we can integrate into our. Um, uh, you know, sort of routine clinical interactions and then talk about some more systems level things. And again, then share a little bit with you about the work we're doing in D.C. So, um, you know, every single patient interaction we have is an opportunity to check in on relationships and strengths and identify needs and refer to community partners. And and I think sometimes we're afraid to do this because we're afraid it's going to take a lot of time. Um, But I would challenge you that, that, A, if you just sort of integrate it into your routine practice, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time, um, and you actually probably save yourself time in the end because these things tend to come to a head eventually. Um, and if we are integrating it into our day-to-day practices um, and identifying these things as they're arising, then then w- w- it's, it's, we're going to be able to manage it in a much more efficient way, um, which is which is ultimately much better for the families and also better for our clinic flow. So. So, you know, encouraging families to consider their emotional development, thinking about ways that you can do that. Um, you know, depending on the type of practice you're in, through newsletters or signs in your practice. Um, you know, the the SAMHSA actually um, and CDC actually have great um, waiting room signage that they make available for free that you can hang in your in your in your waiting rooms that just sort of say, you know, your social, you know, your babies. You know, social development is as important to us as as their other aspects of their development. Um, thinking about how to refer families to community resources, um, normalizing mental health conversations. We, actually, for many years now, have been doing both mental health screening and um, uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorder screening in our practices. And actually, one of the important things that we have found has come out of that is that sometimes the screens are positive. Um, Sometimes the screens are not concerning but, the, but, but families start to see us as a place where they can ask questions and concerns to and they come to us later um, and say, you know, I've, I've, I've literally had patients say to me, I remember that you gave me that questionnaire and now I'm having trouble and want to talk to you about it. Um, and so when a family may not be willing to sort of or may not be in a place where um, they're having concerns at the moment, just normalizing that conversation means that they can come to you before it becomes a crisis. Um, these are some sort of a nice little mnemonic to remember. Um, and again, this is something that you can incorporate into your practice, whether you're primary care or a subspecialist or anyone, right? So these are the five R's of early childhood, routines, knowing what's expected, reading together, rhyming, rewards for everyday successes, um, and building on relationships. And again, right? you know, if you're talking to a family about, if you have a, a patient who needs chronic daily medication, You know, talking to them about making that part of the routine and how you're going to do that. And so these are all things that that you can incorporate into your daily practice, no matter what type of pediatrics, pediatric practice you have, that ultimately have downstream impacts on on building strengths for the family at home, sort of teaching them these skills um, to implement at home. And then encouraging parents and caregivers of all ages to um, be warm and affectionate with your kids um, be aware of their moods um, sometimes it's we I see this in the in in the clinic a lot you know a, a a baby might be having a meltdown and, or a toddler might be having a meltdown and the parent's frustrated. And, and we talk I'm like, no, it's okay. This is a very stressful circumstance. And I, you know, I, it's not uncommon for kids to act like this. And here, let's do this together. And just that, you know, it, takes, it truly takes 15 seconds in the office. But it, it, it provides some modeling for, for a family. Um, responding to, to kids when they're upset and happy. Reading together um, and avoiding TV and screens as much as possible when, the, when they're little. So then, ways to check in on relationships. Um, you know, some practices use screens, um, and that is a certainly a good and structured way to do that. Um, but you can also use open-ended questions. Uh, I, you know, was was um, the AP has a, a family resource network um, who works with many of their uh, uh, sections and chapters, and 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 the the gentleman who heads the family resource network was at one of our board meetings, and he was saying that that. For the, the parents in his network, they consistently say the most important thing for them, for their pediatric provider, is to, s- after, before or after, at some point in the visit, say, and how are you doing? Um, and he said that simple question makes a world of difference, he said, and you'd be surprised how rarely it gets asked. So even just that open-ended question, how are you doing? It communicates a, a feeling of caring and an acknowledgement that the parent is a part of this care, uh, that the parent is a part of this dyad. Um, sometimes it's going to be us as as pediatricians. Um, I know that we have a very multidisciplinary group in here. I noticed, and so and and that's good because sometimes it's the rest of our team, um, and often the rest of our team. You know, parents may be comfortable telling us. One thing, and they may be comfortable telling our MA something else. Um, you know, we always have MAs coming to me like, "Oh, can you check in on so and so about this?" They mentioned this to me, um, and so so making this a part of your care team. Um, thinking about how do we connect families with resources in our community? We can't do everything in the office, um, but but there are a lot of supports around us. If we know about them, we can utilize them. And so then thinking about kind of moving from the clinical level to thinking about how do we how do we how do we support this on a community level or from a public health side of things. Um, you know, thinking about how do we seek a history of childhood experiences from our patients. I, I think this is actually a very complex thing. Um, some practices are doing ACES screening in practice, which I think can be effective if you have appropriate supports, but it is a very complex and community-based um, thing. Um promoting universal primary prevention strategies, so in your communities, thinking about how to support and promote um strong parenting and so support parents where they are, advocating for services that support parents and advocating for early childhood interventions um, and programs that support quality early childhood. So I'm going to shift gears for a second and then I'll leave a few minutes for questions um, and just tell you a little bit about kind of how we've done some of this on the systems level in DC. Um, So actually back in about 2012, um, we were troubled by the, the or as many of you probably are and as folks across the country are troubled by the lack of access to to good quality mental and timely mental health services in our Washington DC community. Um, And so we really wanted to, we thought a lot about how we could address that and where our strengths were and where our areas of influence were. And we decided to really focus on increasing the integration of mental health supports and services in primary care. And so we began there. Um, and actually had some really great successes. Um, we started this DC MAP program, which is a telepsychiatry program to provide support to pediatric practices. We increased inter- integrated mental health screening in practices. But the thing that we kept coming back to, both in our own, you know, program development as well as what we were hearing from the pediatricians and the practices we were supporting across DC, was that it wasn't enough, and that families were experiencing such high rates of trauma intergenerational trauma um, in their homes and in their communities and that you know it just felt like the you know the, the public health parable where you're pulling the baby out of the water at the at the end of the river um, and and we all wanted to go upstream and so we began to think about how could we take a more holistic We're doing. Um, so that was one piece. But then the other piece, which I'm going to talk to you more about, um, is we developed um, what we call the Early Childhood Innovation Network. And I think one important thing, and as we were trying to think about how to move forward, was that we recognized that as pediatricians within a hospital-based setting, We had some areas of skill and influence, um, but we didn't have all the areas of skill and influence and knowledge. Um, And that for us to really be successful in this work, we truly needed to build a community based network. And so we developed um, this approach to to our work in Eason, where we worked to build um, on these were partnerships, many of which had been um, established in different ways over many years, some were new. Um, But we build partnerships with health education and community organizations who had similar goals and missions um, to to what we did or what we wanted to do. Um, We engaged with those partners to really innovate, implement, evaluate, iterate, improve, and share. Um, so essentially, we co-created. We, we, we engaged together with all these partners to try to think about what, what, do, we, what do we need? What, what do our communities need? What do they want? How can we get there? How can we take what, some of the things that we know work and make them work in DC, um, and make them work in DC in a way that is culturally relevant? Um, and accessible and then as we did that then we launched these two generation innovations um, and really worked to promote leadership um, within the innovations and in other ways really across all of these sectors we we often say our goal is not to run any program forever. Um, our goal is to really help build programs and then pull out in a way that the program keeps going. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about one of the ways we've done that in a, in a moment. Um, and then through all of that, um, to really catalyze change um, at multiple different levels. We, we, I don't know if we should, we should uh, copyright this or what, but it, maybe somebody else has done it. But we, you know, we call ourselves translational advocates. Um, people talk about translational research. Um, we call ourselves translational advocates because we really work to take what we're learning um, from the on the ground basic you know research interventions um and translate that into policy change and so um in three years. uh, So we started this in earnest in 2016. Our funding for the project came in late 2015, but we really started in 2016. Um, We've served over 5,000 families, uh, children and families, in multiple settings um, in primary care through Healthy Steps, um, uh, in early childhood education centers uh, with early childhood mental health consultation, as well as um, mindfulness training. And this is, I was going to share, this is Actually, an example of one of the ways where we've been able to transition leadership of a project: we um, worked with a community-based mind, community-based mindfulness instructors, um, together with our local one of our local child early childhood care and education centers, Educare, which is a national model, but there's one in DC, and then we worked with them to offer mindfulness classes for parents at the center, um, and it and in it with the goal of building social connections and helping parents to manage their parenting stress. Um, And we had a great deal of success, actually. Families were very engaged with it, and we saw some nice changes in, in reports of parenting stress and improvements in child development. Um, we also had parents who wanted to come back for more classes. We had some parents and teachers who went on to be trained as mindfulness instructors themselves. Um, and we have now been able to transition where the community-based mindfulness instructors are now working directly with the child care center. And actually, one of the child, one of the employees at the child care center, um, we supported him being trained as a full-time mindfulness instructor. Um, and so, they are now continuing to offer the mindfulness classes with a little bit of background support by us. Um, But really, largely on their own, and so that's sort of the model of you know we're in different stages of that with different projects, but that's sort of the model of how we we like to approach things. Um, We have also done a number of trainings in wellness um, as well as trauma-informed practices for our hospital-based staff. Um, we uh, have an ongoing commitment to to race equity um, and so have, have uh, offered that training and ongoing community of practice for our members. Um, we uh, work together with a number of partners across the city to offer parent cafes, which is a, some of you may be familiar with it. It's a um, uh, it's, it grows out of this group called um, Strengthening Families, and it focuses on um, creating environments where parents can come together and sort of talk through through issues that they face in parenting. And it's a very sort of uh, supportive environment. And it's we've used it as a way to engage, to provide support to families, but also engage families in in our other network activities um, and and um, identifying and engaging parents who want to be leaders in the in the work that we're doing. Um, and so you know, through all of this, we, we really have three main areas that we focus on. And we try to keep our, our, our North Star on these things and the efforts that we do. Um, and the first is to keep parents well by protecting and enhancing their mental health. Uh, the next is to build healthy brains by optimizing early childhood developmental outcomes and the the third is preparing children to learn by ensuring or helping them to get ready to go into school at age five um, and there are things that are really wonderful about this you know some of our community partners who never heard the terminology adverse childhood experiences or toxic stress before they started with us are now you know talking at their own community meetings about this work and how they can support each other and how they can support the early childhood brain development of the children in their neighborhoods and in their communities. Um, we, you know, we're we're again about four years in. We're hoping for many, many, many more years to come. Um, and and I think the the speed to which this the receptivity to this work has happened um, has has kind of told us I think that this was something that our community was was eager for um, and and eager and excited to partner on. Um, so, just kind of to summarize, you know, it, it's as it this is a wonderful quote from Bronfenbrenner, who's a very famous developmentalist. But um, it's development, as it turns out, occurs through this process of progressively more complex exchange between a child and someone else, especially someone who's crazy about that child. And so, if you come away with anything from this talk, I think there's two things. You know, one is is the really profound importance of early childhood brain development, and and two is that by taking this two generation approach with those people who are crazy about these about our kids, um, we can really help support and ensure that their development is optimized. And so, of course, you know we we, we always think about this in the context of our own lives, and I am always. Grounded and reminded that for my own children, um, I, I know what we strive to offer them. Um, yeah, this isn't when they were littler. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> They're bigger now. Um, uh, this is what we strive to offer them. Uh, and 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 we should expect that for all the kids in our community. So um, there's my name. I think we have a couple minutes for questions. Uh, and if we, uh, there's my name and contact information, um, as well as um, I would be remiss if I didn't point out um, if you are an AAP member, um, we'd love to have you more involved and engaged. We have a new leadership. Website where you can learn about ways to do that. Um, and if you are not an AP member but eligible, we'd love to have you. So, with that, I'll take some questions. Thank,
1: thank you. A too. Yeah. Uh,
2: thank you very much. I You're can't welcome. Like, we need you for a work. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, I'd be delighted. Thank you. I have two questions. Yes. One, uh, you mentioned Mm -hmm. two-generational assessment process. You could elaborate a little bit more on that on the ground in the clinic, how does it look like. And secondly, uh, in terms of integrated
1: behavioral health into our
2: primary care, in addition to telemedicine,
1: for psychiatry, we know that psychiatry addresses
2: the symptoms with medication. We need more providers um, within the Clinic, yeah. and how do you yeah. uh, manage that in your study? Yeah, okay. oh, no, no, I, I, I'm delighted. Um, so, you know, in terms of the two generational supports in, in primary care, we, we do it a couple of different ways. We certainly, in the in the immediate postpartum period, um, screen for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and have actually created, um, we have a, a coalition that's focused on maternal and, and actually parental mental health. Um, and so, have developed out a pathway to wellness that we share with families, as well as information about local community-based resources that we can refer families to. So that's sort of the postpartum period, but also just just overall, um, for all families, um, you know, we we do additional screening around resources. So, um, you know, uh, uh, food insecurity and housing insecurity, utility issues. Um, Uh, um, domestic violence in the household. And so we screen and ask about those things at every well visit as well and have some resources developed in a family service service associate in our clinical setting who can help connect families to resources there um, and then help connect families to community-based resources as well. Um, Some of our stuff goes a little bit deeper, like our Healthy Steps program actually provides mental health treatment for parents as well. Um, So some of our, you know, some of our programs go even deeper than that, but that's this sort of general um, thing. And then in terms of integrated mental health care, um, again, we we uh, agree with you, and actually our telepsychiatry program does not just psychiatry, but we also have uh, social workers to provide consultation and care coordination to help um, identify community-based resources to connect families with. And then actually many of our clinics in D.C. have integrated psychologists in their clinics to do um, uh, mostly consultation visits. They're, they don't have the capacity for ongoing treatment um, just because of the volume. You, so, And I'm happy to talk more later. That was a quick response. So. I, have a so Dr. On a I looked it up this time. Geisel, <laughs> <Gaisal laughs> one east and west. Great. Yeah, so she's
0: going to talk with our
2: residents about advocacy, but we welcome our faculty, especially those who have. I love that word, translational advocacy. <laughs> <laughs> to think about translational advocacy Thank you. <laughs> so please join us. Great. Wonderful. Thank Thanks, everybody. <laughs> You're